Welcome to Shield of the Republic, a podcast sponsored by the Bulwark and the Miller Center of Public Affairs at the University of Virginia, and dedicated to the proposition articulated by Walter Lippmann during World War II that a strong and balanced foreign policy is the indispensable shield of our democratic republic. I'm Eric Edelman, counselor at the Center for Strategic and Budgetary Assessments, a non-resident fellow at the Miller Center and a Bulwark contributor, and I'm joined by my partner, Elliot Cohen, the Robert E. Osgood Professor of Strategy at the Johns Hopkins University School of Advanced International Studies and the Arlie Burke Chair uh, Strategy at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Elliot, good to see you this morning. Good, uh, good to see you. I'm uh, actually calling in from uh, beautiful Basin Harbor, Vermont, where I'm working. I'm running a, running a workshop here on the shores of Lake Champlain not that far from where that great and good man, Benedict Arnold, led America's first fleet in the Battle of Valcor Island on October 11, 1776. But we will go into that some other time. I think it's more important. I, 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 refuse to, I refuse to rise to the bait uh, of your, you know, inveterate defenses of, of Benedict Arnold. I will, we'll have to a come much, back to that. A much maligned and misunderstood figure. Uh, I know. And also to... traitor. <laughs> to his okay, fine. But, you know, <laughs> everybody's got a few flaws. And I'm glad to welcome our guest back to Shield of the Republic, Corey Shockey, who's the director of the Foreign and Defense Policy Program at the American Enterprise Institute and uh, part of a very select uh, fraternity and sorority of those of us who have served respectively in the Department of Defense, State, and the National Security Council. She was a NATO desk officer on the Joint Staff and a uh, special advisor in the Office of the Secretary of Defense. She was Deputy Director of Policy Planning in the State Department, as well as a NSC staffer and colleague of mine in the White House in the uh, Bush 43 administration. Corey, welcome back to Shield of the Republic. It is such a joy to be in your intellectual company, my friends. Well, it's uh, it's great to have you with her. You didn't, Eric, you didn't mention that she's just Long-standing friend of ours. On top of all that, <laughs> I, I thought that went without saying. But anyway, um, Corey, you are just uh, back uh, from a recent visit to Ukraine. Uh, we are kind of on the cusp of the long-awaited, much-anticipated Ukrainian counteroffensive. You've also written uh, in the last couple of weeks a terrific piece in the Atlantic about the Biden administration's management of the escalation dynamics in, in Ukraine. Uh, and Elliot actually just published this morning a piece in the Atlantic on the Biden administration's deficient rhetoric on, on Ukraine. So tell us about your visit and uh, tell us about uh, your view of how the Biden folks have managed the escalation challenges here. Yeah. So I was in Ukraine for the better part of a week with renewed democracy, uh, Gary Kasparov's outfit, which is funding an enormous amount of humanitarian Ukraine built run humanitarian operations in Ukraine since the war started. Um, I was really struck at a couple of things. First, both the defense and foreign ministers emphasizing that escalation is the language of excuse. That that and that's what my Atlantic piece is anchored to, this notion that the Biden administration is more concerned about escalation 
than anybody else. And, and it seems to me the most important demonstration of that, that is the data demonstrating the case, is that Britain, Norway, Poland, the Netherlands, and Denmark have all volunteered either airplanes or training for F-16s to be provided to Ukraine. That is, they're more likely to be retaliated against than the United States is. And yet the Biden administration is the one most nervous about it. And that seems they are right to be nervous about it. Um, they are making bad policy choices about that nervousness. And I would suggest there are two. The first is the hand wringing, we don't want World War III. Uh, because that's terrible deterrence. It encourages nuclear blackmail. It encourages Russian irresponsibility. The right answer would be to reinforce deterrence against escalation by emphasizing that the NATO Article 5 guarantee means if Russia escalates to attack Poland or the Baltic states or another NATO member, it will bring the full weight of the NATO militaries into this war. And for vertical escalation, namely the, the risk of Russia using a nuclear weapon, I think the right way to reinforce deterrence is to emphasize that our intelligence has been pretty good so far. And if we see any signs the Russians are making preparations, we will both publicize that intelligence provide targeting intelligence and weapons suitable to the task to the Ukrainians. If we fail to reinforce deterrence, if we fail to prevent that Russian act, um, we will send NATO CBRN troops to Ukraine. That is, there will be permanently stationed NATO military forces on the territory of Ukraine. And we will hunt down and either kill or bring to justice anyone involved in the policy or the execution of that. Talking weak to an aggressor is terrible deterrence. And the Biden administration seems not to be able to help itself either in what they say, absent the Secretary of State's excellent speech in Helsinki a couple of days ago, or in slowly, slowly um, increasing the assistance we give to Ukraine, which is the second problem with how they're thinking about deterrence. So, you know, Corey, the thing that strikes me is, I mean, first, the Russians are in no position to escalate this thing conventionally. They are, they are really out of gas. You know, their fleets are actually worthless. People say, well, their air force is still there. But actually, their air force has proven itself incompetent since the beginning of the war. Everything we know about it in terms of pilot training and so on and so forth indicates it's a pretty weak air force. And if there's one thing NATO does have a lot of its um, its air power. So the only thing that they have are nuclear weapons, and we don't have to rehearse all the arguments here why, oh, I mean, I suppose we could, why it would be extremely foolish for them to begin throwing nuclear weapons around. It's clear the Chinese don't want them to do that, so on and so forth. For me, the interesting question in this is, okay, what, why does the Biden administration natter on and on about this? Usually not directly, I have to say. They usually go through cutouts, uh, you know, journalists who will uh, sort of share their innermost uh, fears. And, you know, given that it's, it's, it is so clearly counterproductive. Now, my, the, the villain that I have in mind in all this is, 
American political science seminars in the 1980s, <laughs> which I think permanently warped the minds of a bunch of people who are otherwise highly intelligent. Uh, but I, I'm actually not, I'm not being facetious, really. I think that what my, my interpretation of it is that you have people who are still caught up in Cold War modes of thinking um, and, and a Cold War understanding of what strategy is, most of which has nothing to do with war. And I, I will, this is about you, not me, Seb, but I will plug the one part of my uh, Atlantic piece where I say, you know, it would have been much better if these guys had been in a couple of bar fights. So they'd, you know, they'd understand that the, the, the conflict of this kind is a very visceral sort of thing. And you don't, you know, you don't titrate your punches in a boxing ring or, you know, some other seriously conflictual place. But I'd be curious to know what's, what's your view and Eric, your view on wh- why, like I said, highly intelligent, highly credentialed people uh, in the White House, I think in the civilian side of the, the Defense Department as well, take a view, which is, it's pretty absurd, actually. Before Corey kind of, uh, you know, jumps in to answer this, uh, Elliot, I, I would like to revise and extend your remarks. I mean, because I think, <laughs> I think it's actually worse than you're suggesting. In, in in the sense that I think a lot of them have... But I always like to be moderate. Yeah, yeah I, well, I, I think it's it reflects a very imperfect appreciation and understanding of, you know, deterrence dynamics, even, uh, you know, in the Cold War period, for instance. And what I mean by that is, and I'd be interested, I've made this point, I think, a couple of times in the podcast before, but if you look at the pattern of Putin's threats to use nuclear weapons, which began on the day he announced the military operation uh, back in February of uh, uh, 2022. He has always made these threats in very vague and, you know, very abstract terms. But when he's been asked explicitly about the use of nuclear weapons, as he was back in the fall, I think it was October or maybe early November, he said, look, there's no point in using nuclear weapons. There's no use case in Ukraine. I, there's no advantage for us to, to use nuclear weapons. I don't want to suggest that it's, it's not active saber rattling. He does do it, but it's very vague. And it's, in that sense, a bluff that's unlikely to be called. And in that sense, it bears an enormous resemblance to a lot of the Soviet nuclear signaling we saw during during the Cold War, which was explicitly cast as bluffs not meant to be, you know, not meant to be called. And, and yet, you know, uh, to Corey's earlier point, the constant hand-wringing, pearl-clutching on the U.S. side about nuclear escalation in World War III, of course, only invites him to argue that if the U.S. does X or Y that he doesn't want them to do, it will lead to World War III or nuclear escalation without, you know, having to actually make good on the threat. It also encourages countries like Iran that having nuclear weapons prevents the United States from being involved in whatever terror or mischief they want to dream up. So it not only encourages bad behavior on the part of the Russians, it encourages proliferation. Um, so two other things. Um, I actually do see one use case for Russia crossing the nuclear threshold, 
And it's the reason I feel such urgency for us to reinforce deterrence uh, because the, the, the one, I, I agree and, and everybody in Kyiv made the case, every government official made the case that there's not a, a sensible battlefield use for nuclear weapons by Russia. And I agree with that, but I can think of a strategic use, which is as the Russian army is defeated and driven out of Ukrainians' internationally recognized territory, that they uh, launch a nuclear strike on Kyiv in order to say they achieved the regime change they came to Ukraine to uh, effect and therefore can take their army home. And that's why I think it's really important and time urgent for us to stop uh, acting like we're the weak ones who need to be concerned in this um, equation. One other thing I would add, you know, it turns out Mike Tyson has provided not just one, but two of the most important uh, reflections on modern warfare. The first quoted in the introduction to Lori Friedman's magisterial history of strategy is Mike Tyson saying, everybody's got a plan until they get punched in the face. And I saw in my Twitter timeline, uh, somebody quoting, um, Mike Tyson saying the problem with social media is people think they can say stuff without getting punched in the face. <laughs> <laughs> again, that goes to Putin and these nuclear threats, right? He clearly doesn't think he's going to get punched in the face. And that's the problem. But, but, but you, I mean, if I may, I'd like to drag you back to my question. <laughs> and, and, but I was doing such a good job avoiding it. Yeah, you were. Seriously, what is the pathology here? Because we are not dealing with stupid people. Uh, we're not dealing with people who are in any way isolationists, right? It's not like they, they don't think that we should be engaged. They believe that we should be engaged. So why? So I think there's a clear consistency by President Biden and the people most closely shaping his attitudes, by whom I mean to say uh Jake Sullivan and maybe Colin Call, uh, that that the Ukraine war isn't worth the risk of direct American involvement, just as Afghanistan was not worth it and Iraq is not worth it. What I think I see the administration doing that worries me is they want to make grandiose political statements the U.S. will send troops to defend Taiwan. Uh, you know, our assistance to Ukraine, we'll do whatever it takes for however long it takes. And then they are banking on people not doing the follow-up, right? Not saying if anything it takes as long as it takes, why not F-16s? Or uh, why are you not preparing the American public for the risks of a direct war with China over Taiwan? And why aren't you paying for a military that has a wide margin of error of success in that? So I think they want the political benefits of looking like statesmen, but they don't want to do the work that it takes to get the congressional votes, to, that it takes to get the public support, uh, the money that it takes to achieve it, and the risks that you run in order to genuinely be the leader of the free world. But, but you know, I think it, it, it does, and I'll, I promise I'll leave you alone after this on the, this subject. 
I, I also though do think that it, um, it, it goes to an understanding of strategy as a form of shadow boxing, where it's not just that they, you know, they're poor on implementation, which at some level they, they, they have been, although everybody is, it, it's, it, it doesn't really figure in the way that they think about strategy at all. You know, it, it is mainly they're just bad at thinking about the use of force. Maybe I guess that's it. That's the simplest way of putting it. I don't know. Someone wrote a book about that a couple of years ago, Elliot. I can't think of who it was. <laughs> huh. Who was it? Do you think they're getting any better? Either of you. Your your our our listeners can't. I'm sorry. See I'm shaking head. my head. No. I think it's I think it's ideology for them. It's an article of faith. There's also I think a, a, a very strong insularity in this group, which. Um, you know, Corey was identifying some of the people. I mean, it's very striking to me that this national security team is made up of people, all of whom, as you said, Elliot, are, you know, they're all extremely smart. I, I think they're all patriots. They want to do what's best for the country, but they all lack sort of independent stature of their own. They all literally come from a pod, if you will, of people who have been staffers for Joe Biden. Um, almost their entire, you know, professional careers or adult lives. And I think that that creates a, a kind of bubble mentality. And you adverted to this in your Atlantic piece, Elliot, you know, that, and I know this is true uh, from personal experience that a lot of these folks are still absolutely convinced that, you know, the uh, withdrawal from Afghanistan in the summer of, uh, in August of 2021, was a, a brilliant success, you know, that got 120,000 people out and that there were no long, long-term long reputational consequences uh, from the kind of shambolic way that this was all executed and the clear lack of preparation that they had, the clear lack of understanding of what the effects of some of their decisions would be. Uh, on on the battlefield in Afghanistan, you know, and nobody has forced them, you know, for instance, to confront the very damning report of the special inspector general for Afghanistan, um, John Sopko, uh, who had a brilliant uh, uh, piece on, you know, why it was that cutting out all the support mechanisms we provided to the Afghan army guaranteed the result that we got. And, and clearly they did not understand that, that we had trained an army to fight the way we fight. And uh, then we pulled the enabling, you know, undercarriage of that out. And I don't mean U.S. troops necessarily, but the contract support for, you know, vehicle and, and aviation maintenance, uh, kind of mission command planning. Um, and of course, the air, you know, air close air support, which was U.S. forces, but the, the fact that we pulled all that out from under them guaranteed that the Afghan National Army was not going to be able to fight. They still think this was a great success. Yeah. And they they also, in addition to everything Eric just said, I think they also believe that the only reason when when challenged about, but there were no American casualties in Afghanistan for the year before. They genuinely believe the only reason that is so was because of the Trump deal with the Taliban. 
that there was no way, which is of course also wrong. So you know it's really troubling? I mean, really troubling? This is probably as good as it gets on the democratic side, I think. And um, given that on, you know, the Republican side, you know, you, you may get sort of Trumpian staffers, which is as or more chilling. I, I kind of worry about the ability of our foreign and national security establishment to execute sensible strategies. Not, not that it won't, that people won't have reasonable ideas, but, you know, as I think the three of us know very well, in part from personal experience, you know, you really, any president depends on a cadre of, you know, for any given decision, a dozen, 20 top-notch people at mid and sort of mid-senior levels in the bureaucracy to pull together options and then to execute them. And I do worry a little bit that, you know, our, that, that pool of people that we used to have for a very long time on both sides of the partisan divide may no longer be there. Could either of you reassure me on that? No, I can't because, I mean, I think a big tell was over the weekend when Vivek Ramaswamy, who is the tech entrepreneur running for the Republican presidential nomination, who's actually polling, you know, about six or seven percent, he's polling right up there with the former vice president of the United States, was asked about Ukraine and he went full Neville Chamberlain in his answer. You know, so I don't know, Corey, reassure me. (laughs) I'm not sure I can reassure you, but it is certainly true that I continue to wear the tiara of optimism. And um, I would not have bet money that the Biden team, who, as you said, are all Biden staffers, not independent political or strategic actors, I wouldn't have bet they they would do this well. And also, um, you know, the the Speaker of the House made reckless comments on Ukraine, which he reconsidered. The Governor of Florida made reckless conversation made reckless comments about Ukraine, which he has also walked back. I think there's no substitute for winning the public argument and and that driving things. Also, these kids these days are fine, right? You guys are both teaching incredibly sparkly young people. Elliot, you even have some in your own family who would do incredibly well on this. So I don't think we should underestimate the ability to get this right, or at least righter than we have it. All right. You've cheered us up. Can we move on to civil military relations? (laughs) Yes, exactly. That's where I was going to go. So we have a new new nominee for chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Corey, and you are one of the leading experts, along with uh, my co-host on civil military relations uh, in the country. What do you make of uh, General Q. Brown's nomination to be the next uh, chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff? Uh, What does it say, by the way, about um, the other serious candidate, uh, Dave Berger, the outgoing commandant of the Marine Corps? Uh, And what can we say about his replacement uh, in this whole kind of minuet of changing senior command positions? Uh, well, first of all, I think General Brown's a terrific choice. Uh, and the good news about the American military leadership is that there were a bunch of good potential choices. I mean, I think uh, General Nakasone, the head of Cybercom and NSA, 
would have been an excellent choice. He has, is not only operationally incredibly serious, um, but is creative on the frontiers of the way war is changing and running a civil and military organization with finesse and without uh, putting his foot in the kind of wolf traps that General Milley could never resist thumping his big hoofs down into. Um, General Brown, I think, is also operationally incredibly serious, has been a terrific leader of the United States Air Force, um, and I think is, uh, is a lot more sensitive than General Milley had been to the fact that the American public wants a military good at what the military does. And to the extent the military elects to become involved in political disputes in the United States, um, you know, the polling on this is quite clear that the public love it when they do it and disrespect the military for doing it. So, so we have been at a point where the American public begins to think about our military the way they think about the Supreme Court, namely when they agree with my political positions, uh, they're true American patriots and impartial. And when they disagree, they're shameless politicians. And so I think General Brown's quite sensitive to the fact that General Milley volunteered his Princeton educated views on a bunch of things like critical race theory, where the military would really love to be left out of this conversation and permitted to do what they do for the country. Um, so, so I think that, that he's a great choice for a whole bunch of reasons, for his operational acumen, for his creative strategic thinking, for his great leadership, but also for his ability to do as Clarence Darrow, that great defense attorney, always advised his always advised his clients, no man was ever convicted based on testimony he did not give. Uh, I, you know, I would just let me just pile on to that a little bit. I um I also I have very, very high regard for uh, General Brown. Um it, it, we should talk a bit about Dave Berger too. It, you know, who has been leading the Marine Corps in what is the most dramatic overhaul of uh, any of the armed services, I think, in a very, very long time. It's no coincidence that they're friends. Um, they are, you know, quite similar in being extremely good listeners. Um, you know, and just on the the civil military relations point, I thought. Um, if, if people haven't seen it, you should go back and there was a, General Brown gave a, an address to the Air Force uh, right after uh, the George Floyd uh, killing. And I thought it was superbly done because on the one hand, you know, you don't want service chiefs talking about every uh, social issue that the United States faces. On the other hand, it was inescapable for him, I think, to address it both because of you know, the intensity of the feelings, but also this is the first African-American chief of staff of the Air Force. And I thought he did it uh, brilliantly. I thought it was, it was he, he walked the narrow lines that he had to walk. Um, he brought in his own personal experience, which I think he also had to do at some level. So it was, that was quite remarkable. But simply as a leader of the Air Force, he's been very, 
you know, sort of leaning forward into particularly technological change and so on. So I think he's very good. At the end of the day, a president has to pick a chairman and the, and the secretary of defense has to pick a chairman that they really feel very, very comfortable working with. I suspect it was pretty close choice at the end of the day because Berg is outstanding um, as well. You know, at, at the end of the day, the um, I think one of the big things that a future chairman have to face is these these may very well be people who you know have to lead the armed forces in war, and that hasn't really been the case, I think, for a while. I mean, even during the uh, Iraq and Afghan Afghan wars, I mean, obviously the, the those respective chiefs were chairman rather were were deeply engaged in that. But, you know, they preside over a bunch of service chiefs who are mainly concerned with, you know, training, equipping, you know, manning the force. And so, you know, you naturally kind of gravitate to those issues rather than how do we actually win this thing, which I think and I think that helps account for some of the end runs that um, uh, President Bush did while we were in office to people like Jack Keane and others, because. I'm not sure he always felt he was simply getting advice about how do we win this war. I think that's going to be part of our future. Let me ask a question, uh, two questions to both of you. So one, I think it's a, you know, a great choice as well. And I, I share both of your uh, views of General Brown. And I particularly agree, Elliot, with the point you just made, which I was going to make if you didn't, which was the very extraordinary um, a statement he made to the service, to the Air Force, after the George Floyd uh, uh, killing. I guess the thing I would say, or I would ask the two of you is, number one, given that experience, how well do you think he will do dealing with those members of the Congress who seem intent on trying to score political points by accusing the U.S. military of becoming too woke? And you know, slamming our military for its emphasis on you know, diversity, inclusion, and uh, uh, equality, et cetera. And the second is, do you agree with me? I think one of the most more important elements of this changeover is the fact that, not through anybody's fault, and not, uh, and this is not meant to cast personal aspersions on any of the leaders involved, but. Uh, you need, I think, some uh, diversity of service experience in senior leadership in the department. And the fact that you had a secretary of defense who came from the army, a chief of staff who came from the army, a director of the joint staff who came from the army, uh, you know, just creates some, uh, you know, unintentional distortions in, in, you know, how the building works in its normal processes which was a similar problem that you had in the Trump administration, where you had a Marine secretary of state, a Marine chairman, a Marine director of the joint staff. Not that anything was wrong with any of those individuals, but but that collectively, it's the natural instinct of people to reach, all of these jobs are impossible, you know, having had one of them. And um, everybody reaches out to people in their circle of, of trust and of experience to help them manage these jobs. And if you have spent uh, 30 or 40 years in a, one of the uniformed services, the people who you're likely to be calling on are those from your own service rather than necessarily 
others, even if you've had joint tours of one sort or another. And I think that was one very important part of this. I'm curious if the two of you agree. Uh, so on the first question about how to avoid getting pulled into politics, uh, you know, I feel like it's the defensive um, side of the coin of Napoleon saying, if you want to take Vienna, take Vienna. If you don't want to get drawn into politics, don't get drawn into politics. Seems to me that the answer the military should be giving, which again, I wish General Milley hadn't opened everybody up to having to have an opinion on this, but but I think the answer the military should be giving to all this uh, nonsense from Congress about wokeness in the military is Congress establishes by law who we admit to the military. It's our job to create cohesive fighting units out of it. And this is the best way we know how to do it. Inclusivity and everybody being respected. If you've got better ways to do that, the military should be open to hearing them, but, but they shouldn't. Um, the second thing is, uh, you know, General Milley actually after the testimony where he volunteered views on CRT had to give testimony and was subjected to genuinely disgraceful behavior by a number of Republican members of the House calling him a traitor and other completely uh, outrageous assertions. And General Milley did exactly the right thing, which was he sat there dignified and said nothing and the members of Congress doing that looked like idiots. And I would be willing to bet respect for the military went up. As to whether the military can and should, military leadership can and should be smart enough to stay out of that, I just offer the evidence provided by um, Elmo Zumwalt, who was the chief of the Navy during the Vietnam War. And he promoted the first female admiral in the Navy. And when he put her epaulets on her shoulder, he leaned forward and kissed her on the cheek. And he writes in his memoir that he got more um, outraged uh, correspondence about that than anything else he did as the chief of naval operations. And his response to it was, you have no idea how many cheeks I had to kiss to become the chief of naval operations. <laughs> and this was the first time it was a pleasure. So pretending that they don't have political skills um, or interpersonal skills that can be advantageous is just not true. You don't get to lead an, any kind of organization without some political skill. That reminds me of Bob Gates saying that he had overthrown you know, several small governments as director of CIA with less pushback than he got when he tried to replace the football <laughs> coach at Texas A&M. <laughs> I, I, I agree with Corey. I think, uh, you know, first, he, he has more discretion than Millie. He'll know when to just, as you say, be silent and dignified. I also think, you know, most of the people who rant and rave about this are cowards. And to be the optics of browbeating an African-American who is a fighter pilot with combat time and, and all that, will make them look very, very bad. And I think some of them will, not all of them, because some of them are genuinely idiots and um, borderline or not borderline racist. But um, I, I think most of them will shy away from that. They, they know that it really won't look all that good if you begin badgering uh, the chairman. That said, 
he'll he'll end up getting some of that. No no question about that. I completely agree with you, Eric. By the way, on the importance of having a diverse, a service diverse team at the top, and I, I'm quite sure that CQ will be very sensitive uh, to that. And I think he'll also, you know, be um, shrewd in his handling of the OSD staff and uh, and OSD civilians, which is also important. You know, as you know better than the rest of us. Uh, there's an intrinsic imbalance of resources between the joint staff and the policy staff, um, and different people handle that different ways. You handled it brilliantly, I have to say, although I do remember certain eruptions of frustration usually occurring around like 4.30 in the afternoon most days when my secure video teleconference terminal would light up and yeah, let's not go there. Yes, I know. I know exactly what you're talking about. But yes, yes, yes. That's an, look. That's an inevitable frustration. I want to close out this segment by saying that uh, you know Professor Edwin Corwin once famously said that the Constitution was an invitation to struggle between the legislative and executive branches over the control of foreign policy and. My view is the National Security Act of 1947 is an invitation to civilians and, and, and uniform military to struggle over the direct, direction of U.S. military policy. So I, I bear the scars proudly. <laughs> so before we drop this, um, I did want to just say a little bit about Dave Berger and this uh, Force Design 2030. Uh, they actually have a website. You can see the basic briefing uh, that they give on it. And then there's an annual update that they've been doing, which is quite informative. His successor, Eric Smith, who's been the uh, number two, will very much uh, continue this on. It's a dramatic remodeling of the Marine Corps, getting rid of the tanks, uh, more long-range missiles, uh, overwhelming focus, I think, on China, um, a whole bunch of other things as well. And and I'm sure, you know, on technical grounds, people can argue about it. Um, and, and, and argue reasonably about it. The things that strike, there are two things that strike me about it. One is, I mean, it is bold and it is, it is dramatic change. And, you know, military organizations, as we well know, are quite resistant to that sort of organizational change in, in, in many ways. But the other thing is, of course, that's been interesting has been the fury sometimes orchestrated from the retired four-star community. And I think one of the things people may not realize about the Department of Defense, actually particularly in the Marine Corps, but in really in all the services, the retired four stars have a lot of influence. And I think that's usually pernicious. I mean, they, uh, you know, they're there in all the mentoring programs for new generals. I suppose that makes sense. But, but it is not a recipe for saying, you know what? What got us here won't get us there. We need to change things dramatically. And it's a piece of military culture that, frankly, has always made me somewhat twitchy. I, I don't know if either of the two of you share my twitchiness on this one. I do. And, you know, I, I think it's striking, actually, that among the retired four stars who have been very sympathetic to what Berger has done has been his immediate predecessor, General Neller, who, who has not joined in the kind of auto de fe that has gone on, you know, in sort of retired, you know, uh, Marine circles about what Dave Berger has, has done. Bob Gates, when I worked for him, when he was secretary, used to 
talk about the problem of you know focusing on you know what we really are about in the Department of Defense, and I think Dave Berger has done a great job of actually focusing on the challenges the Marine Corps is likely to you know face, and you know what you get back is well because it's so specialized into the Indo-Pacific that it's diminishing the you know Marine Corps' role as the nation's first response force globally, but I think actually given the the very challenging circumstances we face uh, and the resource limitations that we are you know inevitably going to be bumping up against uh, what he's doing makes a lot of sense so um i am more supportive of the back and forth that's been going on because he is general berger is instituting revolutionary changes and I actually think this kind of disputatiousness, I agree this kind of disputatiousness is incredibly rare, but I also think it's how you prevent um, big mistakes. And while I am personally quite sympathetic to what General Berger's trying to do, um, you know, there are, there are good rebuttals to some of the some of the challenges that have been raised, Eric just gave several of them. Um, and I think where General Berger might deserve some criticism is, is not encouraging a more open conversation about good reasons why we're doing this and, and why you know, the, the previous structure is unsustainable or unsuited to the challenges at hand. Yeah, I guess, you know, I maybe, but I, I think um, with the community that's been most vocal, I don't think you could argue them out of it. I mean, the, the, these are, the, if you look at the appeals, is they're essentially appeals to tradition and the way we've always done it. There was a robust internal development uh, effort where there was a lot of back and forth. And, and I do think, you know, four stars, and this maybe is a way of, I don't know if this wraps our the civil military relations uh, conversation. They really have a unique status in our system. I mean, more than other, they never really retire. I mean, they really don't. And they do have a lot of influence within the services because of their networks of people who would work for them and so on. And, and they can be end up being subversive of good order and discipline when you get right down to it. Uh, and so I think some of some of the rhetoric that came out of some of these people really approaches that. I mean, it's not, you know, I'm, I have a concern about, you know, how does the Marine Corps fulfill its missions with this kind of force, you know, what, what you would expect in sort of a logical operational level analysis. Instead, it, some of it's been very nasty, very ad hominem. And like I said, it's really, you know, wrapping yourself in a couple hundred years of military tradition. And, you know, it just... It, it uh, brings to mind, you know, failed British military reform efforts at the end of the 19th century. And, you know, that took you straight to the sum. So, I, you know, I, um, I know you want to wrap this section up and I want to move on as well to the next uh, section of the podcast on strategic excellence, uh, which I want Corey to talk to us about. But it, you know, it really, the point you make about four stars never retiring highlights something we talked about in an earlier conversation with Corey, which is it's the reason why they should never get involved in politics after they 
you know, leave command and retire because they still are actively engaged in kind of the shaping of the military and therefore their appearances at, you know, the quadrennial appearances on both both sides of team red and team blue military officers is so corrosive and, you know, undermines military professionalism and confidence, I think, public confidence in the military as well. Uh, and opens up, by the way, people to these charges of, you know, being Bush generals or Clinton generals or Obama generals or uh, woke generals, you know, et cetera. With that, let us turn to strategic excellence. And uh, Corey, you have written uh, an absolutely fascinating essay in New Makers of Modern Strategy, uh, the, the most recent third version of a uh, a a classic work on a strategy that first appeared uh, in in the midst of World War II. A second edition appeared in the mid 1980s at the height of the Cold War. And you and I are both contributors to the current version. And uh, Elliot and I will be discussing it in probably a couple of weeks' time with some of the other authors. But yours is really a unique uh, contribution um, because you write about strategic excellence and the um, and the example you have chosen to focus on is the role of Tecumseh and the Shawnee Confederacy. And I, I wish you would tell our listeners a little bit about uh, how you came to that and and uh, what your conclusions were from studying that experience. Sure. Uh, yeah, I was so grateful that Hal Brands, the editor of this installment of Makers of Modern Strategy, indulged me on this one um, because we... So much of our study of strategy is European focused, when in fact, most of, far and away, most of the wars the United States Army, the United States military has fought, have been the conquest and consolidation of American control of North America. Um, you know, 900 something separate campaigns in order. To, uh, to make it safe for others to argue that we're a maritime power. <laughs> and uh, I, so uh, probably 15 years ago, Jim Mattis and I were having an argument about something. And he asked me when the last time I thought Native Americans might have prevented European conquest of North America. And my answer then and now is Tecumseh and the Shawnee Confederacy, because Tecumseh was so unique a leader and had such a fabulous strategic vision that he carried out so effectively. The Shawnee Confederacy very nearly produced a 1,500-mile barricade to westward expansion, running from Lake Erie to the Gulf of Mexico. Um, it had a domestic political line of operations, an economic line of operations, a military line of operations, a foreign policy line of operations, a religious line of operations, and they all worked together to reinforce each other. So for example, where leaders of other tribes wouldn't agree to join the Confederacy, Tecumseh would undercut their legitimacy as leaders by calling into question uh, treaties that they had signed with the United States government. 
He had an extraordinarily adroit political sensibility. For example, uh, William Henry Harrison, the, the governor of the Northwest Territory, what is now Indiana and several other states, um, would get together all, the, all of the tribal leaders in the region and Tecumseh would use it as recruiting opportunities. Um, and he would talk at great length, for example, about how untrustworthy the American government was because, you know, these people are Christians and yet they crucify their God. What makes you think they can be trustworthy? Um, it, he was just an extraordinary leader and pulls together the only serious challenge to the ability of the United States to continue to control the Mississippi as a major artery of both transportation and economic development to exploit not just the farmland, but the resources, silver, gold, everything else of westward expansion. Had they succeeded, it would have reshaped uh, the evolution of American history. And so I think it's a wonderful story with a very sad conclusion which is that even the most elegant strategy well executed can be overwhelmed by resourcing. And the resources that the United States government has at its disposal for the destruction of the Shawnee Confederacy and every other Native American tribe is the sheer number of settlers willing to move into Indian country and run those risks what you see with westward expansion is very often the American military taking the side of Native American tribes in the argument and getting dragged into the defense of settlers who move in violation of the American government's commitments into Indian territory. So I, I have to say, first, I agree with Eric. You, it's not only is it a fascinating tale, but you tell it in a wonderful way. And it's oh, thank uh, you. Uh, it's it's really a wonderful piece. Um, two thoughts. One is, you know, I've always found it fascinating that you know, we, we fight these horrible, bloody, sometimes genocidal wars with um, the American Indians or Native Americans. And, and yet um, so, so much of their uh, prestige as fighters remains with us. You know, what's what's the most effective attack helicopter in the world, it's the Apache. You know, what's William Sherman's middle name? Tecumseh. Tecumseh. You know, uh, actually was one of the first monitors, I think, in the uh, Union Navy was the Tecumseh. You know, and you, you can go on and on. What's the helicopter that they flew in Vietnam? The Iroquois, otherwise known as uh, the Huey. So there's a, you know, that part of our of our military heritage in a very peculiarly American way. We And we were going to replace the Apache with the Comanche. Comanche, yeah. <laughs> Comanches, by the way, were really bad news. I mean, that's, and that's a separate story. The, the, I guess the, on, on the, the substance of it, I guess for me, um, although I, I completely agree with everything you say, and I've, you know, it's a period that I've, I've actually spent a bit of time on my own. For me, I think one of the critical decisions is the British decision not to continue to support them. Because the, I mean, at the end of the day, the Indians, look, the Indians can't manufacture firearms. They can't even manufacture gunpowder. They, they are, that's not to say they don't have settled 
lives as you know as people i think by now know you know tribes like the cherokees actually are very settled very productive farmers cherokees were even slave owners even but at the end of the day they they have no industrial base what's whatsoever so they're completely dependent above all for firearms on external sources either through trade or its supply from the british and and for me i think there's you know the that was the critical weakness in the strategy. They could only sustain this for as long as the British were willing to pour in resources. And once the British become convinced that they can't, you know, successfully project power into the American heartland, they abandoned them. And the, so, and the Americans are the big losers of the War of 1812. Everybody else, the Americans, the Canadians, and the British can plausibly consider themselves winners. I think I agree with you, although we may disagree a little bit on the finer points of the timeline, because I think the British decision um, gets precipitated by uh, the American Navy interdicting the British supply lines during the War of 1812. And the British decision to abandon Native Americans comes at roughly the same time Tecumseh himself gets killed. And so you have an overdetermined problem of the British uh, not so that part of the genius of Tecumseh's strategy is the agreement with the British that they will supply food and um, to Native American families, freeing up the men to fight. And and you you don't see the the Confederacy disengaging from the fight until the Battle of the Thames when Tecumseh's killed and when the interdiction occurs. But then you see, you know, uh, fighters going home to hunt. Uh, so, so I agree with you that the fundamental weakness of their strategy was economic uh, because they didn't required external supplies, not just of weapons, but also of fundamental um, economics. So yes, it was probably inevitable, but inevitable is a very long time. I just would, you know, to wrap us up, I would say one of the, and take us back to where we began this conversation. One of the things that I found so compelling about your essay, Corey, it, it, in terms of the issue you and Elliot have just been debating, uh, is the old saw that, you know, amateurs talk about strategy and professionals talk about logistics. I mean, you, you end your essay by basically saying that was the ultimate flaw, the weakness in Tecumseh's strategy was this dependence on, um, on a, you know, foreign uh, out, outside source of, of uh, food to sustain the domestic population. And once the Americans cut that, um, it's, you know, it's, uh, it's impossible for the strategy to succeed no matter how brilliantly conceived. And I, mean, I think we've seen that lesson about the importance of logistics and you know, versus strategy being uh, played out again in Ukraine in, in our own time. You know, I, I, um, I guess with, I'll just make this my final comment. I think the essay also, like, like the book, uh, Makers of Modern Strategy, it really does illuminate how a wide and deep reading of military history, even military history from a couple of centuries back, you know, it helps you think about the world as it is, how it helps you think about military challenges as they are. So, you know, there's absolutely no reason to shun the 
late 18th century, which is why actually I would like to have a two-hour session on the finer points <laughs> of the military genius. I'll, I'll, take that, I'll take that as a yes, Eric. We'll have to come back to Benedict Arnold on another day. But that's that's all the time we have, I'm afraid, for Shield of the Republic today. I want to thank our guest, Corey Shockey, for joining us. Corey, it's great to have you. It has been such a joy to have this conversation with you two sparkly intellectuals. And with that, uh, we'll say goodbye for, for this week. If you enjoyed this episode of Shield of the Republic, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts from. And that'll be it for now.